0: Good evening and welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. With me by Squadcast, is my co-host, Dr. Robert Spees. We are recording this show in advance and I uh, sure hope you enjoy it as much as we are about to. Bob, who are we talking with tonight?
1: Well, I'm very excited to have somebody that I met when he was about uh, 10 years old <laughs> up in Anchorage uh, when I was working on the spill with his dad. Uh, this is Nathan Center. And uh, Nathan's an assistant professor at the Department of Environmental Conservation and University of Massachusetts Amherst. And uh, Nathan studies biology of birds and so forth, so uh, we're looking forward to uh, a, a lively conversation. Uh, Nathan, tell us a little bit about how you got started early in life. Uh, I imagine it was kind of the influence of your father to some extent. <laughs> Well, yeah, you know, um, as,
2: as you mentioned, Bob, that uh, my father uh, is a biologist, focused largely on, on birds and bird conservation. And, and so, you know, early on, uh, for better or worse, uh, birds were pretty much a part of the, the daily family life. There was a lot of discussion of what had been seen that day, you know, maybe at the feeder or on, on the walk home. And you know, bird flashcards were maybe far preceding my my learning how to read in the family, so <laughs> uh, it might it might have been a little bit of indoctrination, but it worked. Uh, you know, at at some point, it, I really took a shine to it, and and so I became an avid birder uh, right around the age of eight. Uh, just absolutely fell head over heels when i watched a, a merlin fly into a flock of western sandpipers in the copper river delta in alaska and just seeing how the sandpipers just wheeled around and they seemed to move you know really as one organism i don't i don't know if you've seen these these large flocks you know doing that uh, like murmuration. a murmuration yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and from that point, yeah, I was sort of uh, unstoppable, but uh, <laughs> my actual sort of scientific career t- started to, to take off when I was a, a teenager. I, I was about 14, and my parents said, well, you've got two options. You can go bag groceries at the local grocery store, or you can go work for a biologist, and that was a no-brainer for me. <laughs> I was like, all right, well, I do not want to bag groceries, so I'm going to go figure out what this biology thing is really like. And so I was truly blessed to be able to, you know, because of my parents' connections, to find my way to working for some just amazing biologists in really remote corners of Alaska during my high school years and on into college. And, and so it was just a sort of a, a rolling stone from that
0: point on. Dr. Center is the son of uh, Dr. Center, Stan Center, who we had on a couple of times previously. And in the first time we interviewed him, I think he came up with what is still one of my f- all time favorite factoids that came out of this show about the semi palmated plovers uh, and how they accumulate calcium and phosphate once they reach the breeding ground so they can make eggs. Uh, still to this day, I just am fascinated by that. The, just envisioning the sight of these semi palmated plovers who have just flown what, 3,000 miles to reach the the tundra. And Bob had asked, well, you know, how do they lay eggs once they get there? Do they carry them with? And, and Stan said, no, of course not. They they can't afford the, the weight. So they not only do they not have eggs, but they don't have calcium. So they have to run around and pick lemming teeth out of snowy owl pellets <laughs> and grind those up in their gizzards because the teeth are calcium phosphate, so they're digestible. <laughs> Ready source of calcium. But what an image that created. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I
2: that, is, that is a great image, and that's actually one of the, I think, the truly fascinating things about um, shorebirds and bird migration, actually, in general, is how quickly they can make that transition from these epic flights to to laying these eggs that are really energetically expensive. That takes a lot of uh, a lot of resources for them to do that. Um, and so we've actually been learning, for instance, that some shorebirds can can make that transition in as few as five days. They get there. Wow. They get those resources, and they they have at least an egg within five days, which is I think wow. pretty phenomenal. So. Yeah, there's there's a lot of really cool biology that's wrapped up in that observation.
1: I could imagine a shorebird uh, arriving you know, after a long journey and arriving in Alaska in, in the spring, uh, where the days are long, and it's just feeding twenty four seven, right? <laughs> I, I think so, yeah. yeah, yeah,
2: yeah,
0: yeah. Hyperphagia.
2: That's right, and that you know that that um, that transition though, and maybe I'm getting ahead of, ahead of myself in terms of subjects for us to talk about, but that is that is actually one of the key traits in the ability of birds to respond to climate change. So, you know, we know that springs are getting earlier in a lot of places and birds are having to shift around their migration and sometimes they can't predict very well what things are like ahead of them. And so they're maybe not arriving right sort of in synchrony with, with the timing of spring like they used to. And so their ability, though, to get those resources and to transition to being able to be on their eggs as rapidly as possible is, is one of the key sort of uh, components of, yeah, whether or not they can keep track of these ever-changing springs.
1: That's a big issue in climate change with a match, match mismatch between food sources and and uh and and you know what would think be ingrained habits uh responding to the environment over years uh, that, that's been so in a certain state and all of a sudden it's changing rapidly and how do they how do they fit into that and what happens to their food does it does it keep pace or are they out of they out of phase with what's available and
0: yeah before we get too far off in the weeds we should probably uh, get some back more background on you dr center what what your current research is and and uh, what kinds of things you're uh, looking at and discovering
2: yeah well so i yeah i jumped the gun a little because because <laughs> actually investigating how how birds respond to climate change and and i would say environmental change sort of more broadly uh is is really the core focus of of my research. And so what we uh, tend to do is we uh, use tracking devices that allow us to follow the movements of individual birds, hopefully over the course of multiple years, if not their entire lives. And then to couple those with both sort of on intensive on the ground studies in at least one of the places where they spend time. And also the use of um, what we call remote sensing data, so things like satellite imagery uh, or large scale sort of um, uh, climate models that model how winds are are moving across the globe to really sort of combine all of this into what we think of as a as a holistic view of of how uh, an individual is sort of both pushed around and hopefully responding to their environment.
0: Yeah. During a time of rapid ecological change. Yeah. Right, Right. Exactly.
1: Do you have any uh, models that you run that kind of integrate all the things that that are, that birds are doing? Is energetic model or a life history model, or, um,
2: well, or you're yeah. just looking so at
1: we, pieces of that? Yeah.
2: Yeah, you know, there. I, I, we don't have one. Um, there's no one magic model that incorporates it all, <laughs> <You> are, <laughs> but, right. um, yeah. but you know, we're definitely sort of working on uh what you might call population models that sort of understand that try to uh, link what an individual does and how successful they might be at at laying eggs or raising young or surviving with sort of the dynamics of the population Uh, and then models that sort of link environments with how the individuals themselves are doing and so we, we don't quite have one that, that spans that entire distance, but definitely, um, you know, that's, that's really the goal is sort of coming up with these, these models that can integrate lots of different inf- kinds of information to, to point to the things that we think are most important.
0: And which kinds of birds? Are, are you focused on any particular families of birds? Well, only the coolest. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> ah, gulls.
2: <laughs> oh wow! Uh-oh. Now, now we've got some disagreement here. <laughs> By and large, my uh, my research group works with long-distance migratory shorebirds. So, in more ways than one, I don't fall too far from the the tree. Uh, yeah. My father was also interested in those, and the the real centerpiece of my lab's research is the Hudsonian Godwit. And mm. if you're not familiar, this is a a bird that spends the winter down in the very southern tip of South America. Uh, and then they breed up in subarctic and Arctic, Alaska and Canada. And in between, they are making flights of seven days or so and covering 11,000 kilometers sometimes without stopping uh, and to translate that into miles. We're talking about 5,500, 6000 some miles. Um, so they are really uh, they're really the masters of this whole migration game. And so I think I think pretty darn cool. Uh, but we also we dabble in other shorebird species. We work a lot with wimbrel, which is a, a really large-bodied curlew, um, red knots in especially the population in Mexico that passes through the California coast, and then um, and then very recently we've started sort of a big broad-scale uh, project working with a number of shorebird species in Alaska. Uh, both greater and lesser yellowlegs, and short and long-billed dowitchers, and American and Pacific golden plovers. So a number of those are, are passing just through your neck of the woods mm-hmm. uh, down the California coast in the Central Valley.
0: Yeah, most of those are familiar birds uh, on passage. We don't have a lot of shorebird habitat here that holds them, you know, in either breeding season or wintering, but we do get a lot of them stopping by on, on the way to and from, except uh, except the first one, <laughs> Hudsonian Godwood, of course uh and because they don't stop w- weren't they just in the news recently, their long distance flights are even more amazing than had previously been suspected. that
2: was their very close cousin, the bar tailed Godwood that, I think bar tailed that's right, to. yeah, so so some some really uh. Close colleagues, uh, Dan Ruthroff with USGS in Alaska and Jesse Conklin, who actually is based uh, not far from you in uh, the Humboldt Bay Area. Um, they went and they they were able to put a transmitter on a juvenile bar-tailed godwit. So it, I think they detached the transmitter when it was maybe 20 days old, still running around, not able to fly. <laughs> and then they, they caught its first southward migration. And that bird flew from... The Bering Sea coast in Alaska, all the way to Tasmania, I believe it was, is something like thirteen thousand kilometers, or an un- unreal, you know, distance. Um, wow. So t- just think about that. That that bird, right? It took off on that flight when it was what six weeks or seven weeks, maybe eight weeks old at the oldest, right? That is <laughs> a crazy transition from egg to. Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm just going to go, and I'm going to keep going <laughs> forever.
0: Wow. wow. How long did it take to make that flight?
2: Oh, gosh, I'm trying to remember. Nine or ten days.
0: Yeah, so nine or ten days, continuously flapping. They they can't glide. Yep. They're not gliding. Yeah, And it's going, so night and day, continuously flapping, can't land, can't glide, Yeah, and it's going to a place it's never been before. Never been. And, and it doesn't. And- go ahead.
1: No parents.
0: Yeah. No guide. Is it yeah. is it
1: are they going by themselves or are they going in flocks? You
2: know, Good question it, they are they are frequently taking off in small flocks. And yeah, okay. of course, what we don't know is quite how they're organizing that with the other birds to be like, Are you going the same place I'm going? You know, are you are you really ready for this flight? But there's definitely some social communication going on. Uh, so they're not taking off alone. Uh, they might land alone, of course, if other things, you know, happen to their their compadres. But uh, but they're they're definitely not trying to make it all all by themselves.
0: But it's also not like a mass migration. They don't all take off
2: at once. No, they do not all take off at once. And, and in fact, so the same colleague, Jesse Conklin, uh, has spent years and years watching Bar-Tailed Godwits depart from New Zealand. And what he has witnessed is how an individual will sort of be like, I'm ready to migrate today. And they'll they'll do flights over the rest of the the, uh. the birds in the bay, sort of calling and trying to get them interested. And if they can get, say, seven or eight or 10 birds to go with them, they take off. But if they don't, they put that down and they're like, okay, all right, guys, I'll wait another
0: day. I'll be oh, darned. Wow. Yeah. That's some to behavior. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and do Hudsonians do the same kind of behavior?
2: You know, um, I would assume so. I have, I have not sat on Chilaue Island is where the birds that go to Alaska, the Hudsonian godwits that go to Alaska, spend the winter, that's in Southern Chile, um, and they're certainly there in, in groups of a couple thousand, um, but I haven't watched that that real sort of moment of departure in the, in the way Jesse has from New Zealand.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you do the research down there? It's probably not an easy place to get to.
2: Well, now Ch- Chile is not quite as remote as, as you might think. And we've got some really great colleagues from the Universidad Austral de Chile. Uh, Juan Nevedo is a, a professor there and in, in his lab. And they're... Uh, really focused on uh, the shorebirds that spend the winter on Chiloé. And so they've got a, a lovely research station. And actually, if you're looking for places to do field work, Chiloé is about as good as it gets. You go out and watch a whole bunch of birds in a in a bay that's not too big. It's, you know, this their summer, it's pretty sunny. And then you come back and you drink some great Chilean wine, you eat some great seafood. And you go to sleep and you start all over again like <laughs> i it, it's sort of heaven for a shorebird guy like me
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, okay so
2: yeah. much
0: for the myth of you know scientists toiling away in in uh physically hostile places
2: yeah. oh we do that too but Chile is not yeah, the yeah. place for it <laughs>
0: <laughs> interesting so before we get too far away maybe uh it'd be a good idea to ha- hear a little bit more about this bird the hudsonian godwit since i think probably not a lot of people here know much about them. What's their life history like and uh, what's, what's cool about them?
2: Clearly the flight is, is a, is a big component of that. Um, So as I said, you know, if we sort of start from the South, they, they spend um, from about October till uh, early April uh, on Chilaue Island um, in these really gloppy mudded intertidal bays that are on the north uh, on the eastern and northern sides of that island. And, and Chile is a, a substantially large island. So this is not uh, like a little rock out on the ocean. You know, there are a uh, number of large towns and, you know, major agricultural area for for Chile and and then these intertidal bays. And those intertidal bays also happen to be really important places for aquaculture. So. Um, uh-huh. Raising oysters and they're farmed salmon out in the middle of the bays, and then people are are collecting algae. And so, one of the the sort of conservation concerns that we're we're trying to address is is sort of the relationship with all of the people who are using those intertidal areas and and the godwits. Is this in Patagonia? They would say it's just on the northern tip of Patagonia. They they I don't see. like to to consider themselves yeah. part of that. Um, so yeah, so that's where Godwits are for six six months, and and while they're there, you know, they recover from their their migration to there. Then they they go through a molt, and then they start preparing to to head head northward in our spring and the the Chilean fall. And so from Chile, they take off and they do this this flight where they go out over the Pacific Ocean and they parallel the South American coast, and they're flying and they cross. Um, the isthmus of Tehuantepec in, in in Mexico and over under the Gulf of Mexico and then up through the mid continental US. And, oh. hmm. and so some, some individuals, you know, start sort of stopping over uh, as soon as they hit the Gulf coast there in Texas. But others are, are continuing on nonstop all the way as basically as far as they can go. And that might be Nebraska or South Dakota. And, so in the mid-continent, they're really switching things up. And what we're finding is that they're predominantly making use of really shallow water, ephemeral wetlands. So these aren't, you know, big lakes, and they might just otherwise appear like a little puddle. Um, but that's that's where they, they are stopping over, and they sort of string together uh, sh- stops at a, at a number of these small wetlands, and... Um, and they, you know, are recovering from this this big, huge flight that they just did, and then making uh, preparations for the next one, which is to go back to Alaska. So they'll take off from the Dakotas and generally fly another three days or more nonstop um, back to Alaska, which is where they they breed or or Canada. There there are multiple populations, but um, yeah, so that's sort of that that stretch, and then they they're really in Alaska for a very short period of time, ten to twelve weeks. Um, and, you know, in that time, they've got to reconnect or find a new mate, lay those eggs, uh, incubate the eggs, raise some chicks. And shorebird chicks are like chickens or ducks, right? They're precocial. So, so they're running around on their own. So they're never feeding the young, but they're guiding them. They're protecting them. And then they're leaving them. <laughs> and they're <laughs> getting ready themselves to, to go back south. And, so uh, uh,
1: if they're spending uh, the uh, southern summer in chile and the northern summer in alaska uh, why do they breed in alaska why don't they breed in chile ah uh, well this is one of the those classic
2: questions uh and and i will not be able to give you any ultimate answers but suffice it to say that there are a lot of resources that would be otherwise unutilized that open up in places like alaska because of all the daylight that uh that is there in the summer so you know famous of course for the midnight sun and the midnight sun means you can do things all day long and that is you know the birds are are feeding and and carrying on that whole time and so that's especially helpful for the young so it's not
1: Um, it's not symmetrical you don't get the equivalent amount of uh uh, conditions in Chile that, that you would in Alaska in well, terms of day, le- day length and all that.
2: No, so certainly, you know, they're experiencing a, a big boost in daylight and and, and resource uh, phenology as well. But there's just not the landmass that's available in southern South America that there is in uh, the subarctic and arctic of, of Canada and Alaska. So, you know, if you're just sort of thinking about density of birds and the amount of resources that they can make use of, it's it's a much more sort of available space for them uh, than
1: it would be to try and make a go of it in Chile. So one of one of the uh, personal experiences that I've had as a biologist that was I'll never forget is going out on a Copper River Delta in one of those airboats that Marianne Bishop uh, kind of guided and seeing the the numbers of shorebirds there it was unbelievable it's unreal (laughs) and they all
2: they all have some place to go so they're in a hurry
1: if you've just joined us uh, we're talking to dr nathan center from the university of massachusetts amherst uh, talking about uh, shorebirds and shorebird migration Uh, fascinating conversation
0: so the yeah that's an interesting point you touched on there the 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 distribution of these populations that the they're uh i i just was reading in one of scott widensall's books about this as well that uh for a lot of migratory birds they're distributed over a much larger area in breeding season than they are in the yep. wintertime a lot of these birds are packed into tiny little home ranges in the winter ground is that yep. true for the godwits
2: yeah so so as i was saying you know in these uh intertidal bays in in Chilaue and Um, elsewhere in Chile and Argentina, you know, you could see two, three, 5,000 Godwits all, all in a bay. And, um, they are, you know, then sort of in, in fairly large flocks within, in those bays and, you know, they, they're spacing each other out. They're not, you know, uh, elbowing each other uh (laughs) every moment but they're you know in groups where they're sort of spaced within say 10 20 meters to the next bird and that's a, a whole lot closer than uh say in the breeding grounds where it might be 200 400 meters or you know even a kilometer sometimes depending on the place between godwit nests so absolutely much much higher densities
0: what is the population the world population these
2: yeah, we're working on that. So um, <laughs> the, the estimate for a long time has been about 70,000 birds, which is not very large as bird populations go. And there's, you know, really unfortunate evidence of a very severe decline in the birds that breed in Canada and spend the winter in Argentina. So uh, you might be familiar with the 3 billion birds lost paper that was published in Science Magazine a few years back. And in that paper, they estimate that that Atlantic population of godwits has declined by about 88% over the past uh, 45 years. Wow. Um, our our uh, efforts on the Pacific coast, on, on Chilawe, which are the birds that breed in Alaska, suggest that they're actually largely stable. So, so it really seems to be a, a very dramatic difference between those two groups of godwits.
1: So thats that, that habitat-related loss, or do, do we know?
2: Yeah, climate change is certainly playing a role. Um, and so just the dynamics of the, the way climate change is progressing, the eastern Canadian Arctic is, uh, is changing in a way that's very difficult for not just godwits, but uh, Arctic breeding birds in general to respond to. And so um, they're just not raising very many young. So that's certainly part of it. Um, There are concerns about um, hunting pressures that might be sort of of asymmetrical between some of the populations. So there's still shorebird hunting in some of the Caribbean islands and along the Northern coast of South America. Um, And then there's issues about water availability in the mid-continent, those shallow uh, ephemeral wetlands that I was mentioning. they're not, those are the kinds of wetlands that farmers love to get rid of. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, understandably, they keep them from being able to plant. And so there may also be some issues about the timing of water availability and when the two populations are passing through the mid-continent. So, so there's definitely some sort of asymmetry in the kind of threats that the two populations are facing.
0: Yeah, we, as soon as you mentioned that the stopover and that they rely on these little Small, shallow, seasonally wet areas, I thought those, those are disappearing fast in the, yeah. in yeah. North America in general. Yep, yep.
2: Yeah, so that's one of our, you know, for, for my group, for my research group, that's one of our next big goals is to really uh, try to learn a bit more about how Godwits actually find those little pockets of wetlands because it's not like they're in the same place from year after year. And then to, to really uh, work with um, the agricultural landowners to understand how, how they view those wetlands and whether we might be able to find some sort of, uh, you know, a, a happy medium, shall we say, uh, where those water that water can exist predictably enough that the birds can find it, but also doesn't encroach too badly on the ability of farmers to do the things that they need to do.
1: I know those those, uh, seasonal wetlands are heavily uh, uh, regulated in Sonoma County, anyhow, here. here, But I I don't have my ear to the ground for all those sources of information.
2: Well, there's actually some really cool work going on in the Central Valley of of California on precisely this issue, where the Nature Conservancy and uh, the National Audubon Society and Point Blue are teaming up with farmers to figure out how they can put water on the land just at the time that the birds need it and in a way that doesn't you know negatively influence the ability of the farmers to to plant and and grow what they need to so i think there's there's some blueprints for success on these kinds of programs but we got to figure out at the very first how the birds actually find the water uh when it's so hard to predict where it's going to be do they feed in uh rice rice paddies central valley Sorry, Hudsonian Godwits do make use of rice in, um, in say, in Texas and Louisiana, and, and and then the work in the Central Valley is definitely with rice growers. Uh, that right, the okay. California Rice Growing Association is being a big partner in all of that work. That's called that program is called the
0: Bird Returns Program. So right. look that one up. That's cool stuff. But just to clarify, Hudsonian Godwits don't really uh, migrate up the Central Valley. Right. Not, no Hudsonian Godwits involved or helped by that program. <laughs> yeah. uh, but millions of Dunlin and Western Sandpipers, uh, among yeah. others. Yeah. Really, really, yeah. That, we should get somebody on specifically to talk about that program sometime, because it really is fascinating uh, and a remarkable success story. You know, sometimes it seems awfully daunting when you're trying to solve a, con- a conservation issue you know, agriculture is so big and so powerful; it has so much. You know, it seems immovable, and yet there are some great examples of where you can go with the right uh, attitude, basically, and just say, you know, how do we make this work for everybody? And yep. surprisingly, a lot of the agribusiness is quite receptive to that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's not, all, not only birds in the Central Valley with those with with the timing of uh, the wetting of those uh, rice paddies, but it's a larval fish. In the river that are affected by pesticides that uh, wash off, and you know the whole timing of the migration and growth of those things. So it's a pretty, pretty complex. And you lay down the the bureaucracy of the state, and you know all these different types of farming that goes on. It's, uh, I would imagine, it's pretty damn complex.
2: I, I I think so. Yeah, which makes it all the more amazing when you know folks can actually get all to work and and work together.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of I think part of the reason it's successful there. You mentioned the three uh, main entities that are involved in that project. I don't think the state of California was in that list. They are now. uh, I mean, I I cannot
2: speak too knowledgeably, uh, uh, but I know especially in in terms of mitigating the effects of the drought, that's the the state has become an important player. But but certainly the initial initial impetus was was from those those three groups.
0: Yeah, so that was Audubon, the National Audubon Society, and Point Blue, which used to be Point Raised Bird Observatory. Yeah. Yeah. And then who's oh, the, the third the organization? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and the Nature Conservancy. Nature Conservancy, that's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's go back to the, the central midlands, the upper Midwest, and what's going on with the wetlands up there? Uh, I know that Ducks Unlimited in the 20th century had quite a lot of success trying to protect the last remaining prairie pothole country f- because of the ducks using it.
2: Yeah. Well that you know, that's something that we're really just starting to investigate, but it looks like the Godwits and the other shorebirds and the ducks are using slightly different kinds of wetlands and it has to do with the depth of the water. And, and, um, and so the ducks unlimited and, um, you know, national, federal and state agencies have really done a tremendous job at preserving and actually creating uh, waterfowl friendly habitat in, in precisely those regions in the prairie potholes. And so, you know, if you look at the population, um, trends of, of birds in North America, one of the groups that's actually doing well are waterfowl. And that's because of these very real partnerships. And that's, that is just awesome. And so now we need to figure out how to how to translate that into some of these other kinds of habitats because they don't fully overlap. And so yeah, shorebirds aren't necessarily benefiting from what what DU and others have done.
0: Right. Yeah, they don't have that that kind of motivated constituency. That's <laughs> so right. We kind of wandered away from the topic of your actual research, <laughs> and I think I think we should go back to it because you. Uh, you're using some of this cutting-edge technology, right, with the new generation of extremely lightweight and transmitters. And you said potentially monitoring a, an individual bird for its its lifespan, which that's kind of a new wrinkle, isn't it? Most of these things didn't use to last more than a few weeks. Yeah. Well, yeah.
2: When you talk about cutting-edge technology, I'm not even sure we're using cutting-edge because cutting-edge changes week by week. It's, yeah. you know... As with so many parts of modern society, it's going fast. But yeah, there are now tracking devices that are um, able to transmit to satellites that are as light as a gram. Uh, And, you know, those sort of the size of the the device influences how long its battery lasts. So those smaller ones might only be six months or a year, but, uh, you know, a couple of grams heavier three grams uh we're talking about things that can you can put solar panels on them so that the battery can sort of recharge in real time and those can potentially last for many years uh we've tracked some individuals with us you know with the same tracking device for up to five or six years Um, wow and and you know so then hopefully uh we we might be able to, to say, recapture that bird and, and put a new device on it. Or, you know, we might say, hey, you've, you've told us enough about your life. We'll, <laughs> we'll give you yeah. some privacy from now on. <laughs> but, uh, but absolutely, the, the kind of devices that, that we can put on birds now and the information we can get from them is, is just pretty mind boggling. So it's not even just simply where is a bird. Uh, we can, depending on the device, get that kind of information every five minutes uh or something like that we can also uh, put on what's called an accelerometer which will measure sort of the speed at which an individual is moving in um in sort of three-dimensional space and so you can then infer the kind of behaviors that they're exhibiting in real time more or less Um, because you can sense if they're like say putting their bill in the mud to to feed or if they're flapping or if they're gliding, or you know any number of other behaviors. Um, so yeah, it, it almost seems like the sky is the limit right now for the kinds of science that you can do with uh,
0: these tracking devices. Doesn't sound like the sky is a limit anymore. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: no. And, and so I, I know folks may not have the context for what 3 grams feels like a a paperclip, your standard paperclip is about a gram. So we're talking about a device that's, um, you know, three paperclips, maybe four paperclips and is, and is just sort of as long, right? We're talking about maybe an inch, an inch and a half in in sort of, uh, length and maybe a half inch in in width. So it's for, for a bird the size of a Godwood, it's not, you know, it's not a big thing. And and of course, if you have a bigger bird, like a goose, you can put on something slightly heavier, um, but, yeah, obviously the goal with these things, I should point out, is, is to make them as light as possible so that we're not influencing what the bird does because we really gain nothing if we stick a device on a bird that makes it so it can't fly, right? That <laughs> That's some pretty right. pretty terrible data that we'd be getting out of it. So So the miniaturization process has been a huge component of it.
0: Yeah. And how many of these do you have now? How many birds are sending you their detailed Uh, whereabouts yeah let's see um depends on the project
2: you're talking about but but across all of the the work that that my research group is doing we probably put out 80 or 100 of these devices on different species last year and you know if you look sort of across the world this is something where tens of thousands of these are being put out on different kinds of species uh you know, there's just an, a revolution in terms of its use in, in science across taxa.
1: Yeah. So like a lot of other technology, it's, uh, the price must be coming down.
2: It is not as fast as you might hope, uh, <laughs> still these ones, especially the ones that, uh, you know, have the capability to, to give you more precise data are still pretty pricey. So, we're talking about $1500 or $2000 or so for for a single device. And then you often will have to pay for um excuse me, for time on a satellite so that you you know it it will take your signal and and beam it back to you. Um so these are not cheap and and that actually of course very much influences who gets to use
0: them and and which species are getting studied with them. Mm-hmm. And then you also have to the expense of getting out where the birds are, catching them, putting the thing yep. on them, all of that, that's yep. laborious work, right? Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, that's the fun thing for me. <laughs> but because, uh, you know, if if it was too easy, right, then we us biologists would, in a way, just be out of a job again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we we've still got the corner on having to go out and
0: actually figure out how to catch the birds. And where do you do you do that on the breeding grounds or the wintering grounds or both?
2: It, it really depends on the species and the question. Um, so we have gone down to Chilauea Island to, to put the transmitters on, on Hudsonian Godwitz down there. Um, but we also have a, a site in Alaska, in south central Alaska, where we've been working for the past 15
0: years. And we, we put out uh, tracking devices there as well. I'm just trying to imagine, so you must be netting these birds, catching a even a recently fledged chick, shorebird chick, doesn't, it seems like the opportunities for hilarity would be pretty high. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, yes. So we have to, in order to, to
2: get the chicks, we have to be at a nest at, as they're coming out of their eggs, because oh. within, within a couple hours, they are... Poof! They're they're gone into the uh, in this case the the muskeg bog, and so what we do though is that we put actually a different kind of transmitter, not quite as high tech, a little um, you know radio tra- transmitting device that just sends out a beep signal uh, once every couple sen- seconds, and we put those on onto the chicks as they're hatching so that we can then follow them as they they move around the bog, and that's how we can then re-find them. Because, yeah, you, you would like to think, A, that you are faster than one of these guys because their legs are, you know, just a couple inches long. And also that you're smart enough to see them, but you're not. They're both faster than you
0: and they, they can evade your, <laughs> your yeah. senses very easily. Uh, if you've never tried to run on a muskeg bog, yeah. <laughs> you might overestimate your ability to do so not the easiest terrain for bipeds like us to manage no so you so you just radio tag them and keep track of where they are and then you go out and catch them again yeah one of the many components of the
2: work we do is trying to figure out how successfully they're you know they're uh finding insects and and things to eat on the landscape and so that requires catching them again and
0: and figuring out how how well they're growing huh and at some point you you replace the little radio tag with a transmitter that logs their migration or do you do that after they've gone back to Chile Yeah so we
2: have for that particular project I'm sorry to be so confusing about how much how many different things we have going on but we we are not tracking those particular young birds we are uh-huh. tracking the adults though because uh since we've been working there so long um you know, we get the same adults that return year after year after year. And so we, we focus our sort of migratory tracking efforts on the adults there. And uh-huh. our local scale work is, is tracking work is focused
1: on the chicks.
0: So you're looking at different things, answering different questions. Exactly. Yep. Yep.
1: We're talking to Dr. Nathan Center from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, uh, talking about uh, shorebirds and shorebird migration a quick perusal of your website. Uh, there's a lot of different things going on here in your research lab.
2: Yeah, that's that's one of the fun parts for me, the catching birds and then the, you know, just being involved with, a, you know, a really dynamic and awesome team of, of students who are going off and doing totally cool things and places that I'd love to go and be able to spend time with all of them doing. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, just getting, getting the opportunity to think along with them and learn what they're learning.
1: Well, I'm not a bird researcher, but I do remember chasing harlequin ducks down the beach in Prince William Sound into a mist net. <laughs> that was kind of fun.
2: Yeah, as I said, like that's that's the the part that sort of keeps it uh keeps it alive for me is actually getting out in the field and you know getting my heart rate up and <laughs> sure, <laughs> sometimes right. banging my head against the wall trying to think like a bird so that I can catch catch a bird. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we were talking before about how do we actually catch the birds? And I said that for the chicks, we have to get them right as they're coming out of the eggs. Uh, for the adults, we can catch them as they're sitting on their nest before they hatch because Godwits sit very, very, very tightly on their nest. So in fact, you will need to be within like a couple of feet of their nest before they will get off of it. Um, and so that makes finding their nests incredibly hard. Uh, so we estimate that for each individual nest, we spend about 24 person hours. So wow. if we've got a four person team, you know that's that's about a yeah. one nest per day. And oh, wow. Uh, so they're they're very easy to catch you know once we find their nest because then we can just walk with a, a big long net right over the top of them and, and lay it down and you know they, we come along and we just sort of say, Hey, here we are. And they fly up into the net we just placed on them. And, and it's just like that, but it's the finding the nest. That's so
0: incredibly hard. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You're looking for a needle in a haystack and the needle is colored like the hay. Exactly. That's exactly (laughs) it.
2: (laughs) Whereas in, yeah, down in Chile, uh, there are our colleagues, um, they have what are called cannon nets which are just what they sound like they're a net strung between two sort of projectiles that you put into a cannon and you fill that cannon with a little bit of gunpowder not a lot just a little and then you uh wait for birds to come and sort of sit in front of that net area and then you can can you know say three two one bang and and there it goes and uh, the net will fly out and over the birds. And so you can then catch a couple of hundred sometimes. That's, that's sort of too big a catch, but we, you know, maybe 50 to a hundred birds at a time. Yeah. Wow.
1: It's hard, it's hard to process that many birds at once without them freaking out.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So that's why we don't like to do that. Yeah. And then, yeah. So then after you get them in the, in these nets, you've got to run in there and take each bird out individually and, uh, what take samples and bandit and all that right so we
2: you know what we what we do there is we'll often have like a 15 person crew um so everybody's got a job and you get them all out from under that net and we we put them then into um little temporary holding cages where they can calm down and you know sort of stay out of sight while we then do the slower part of of processing them and yeah taking whatever samples and maybe putting a tracking device on them um but yeah, so it is, it's it really does require a, a, quite a team effort, and uh, and really got to be careful. Yeah, as you say, it takes so long. You don't want to have hundreds of birds waiting there for hours and hours. Yeah. That's that's mm-hmm. not good for the birds. So,
1: wow, yeah, what a logistical question. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: So, what kind of things that we haven't talked about are you doing with the with the shorebird biology? <laughs> <laughs> Do, doing. Uh, physiological studies, energetic studies.
2: Uh, yeah. So, so my, my wife is also a a faculty member here at at UMass Amherst and, and she's a physiologist. So we try to team up a bit to to think about exactly how they, they make use of the energy that they're taking in and, and how they, um, you know, make use of it while they're, uh, doing these epic flights, um, and especially how how quickly they can grow, and the chicks can grow in Alaska, and you know these brief summers. So definitely thinking about the energetics and the physiology on that end. Um, then we also, you know, we really have a lot going on with partners in South America to try to estimate population sizes of all of these shorebirds, because um, you know if if the goal is to really be able to understand how they respond to changes in their environment, then we need to know that response at the population and the species level. And that means knowing how many of them there are and how that might change from year to year. So we've got some, some great citizen science efforts that go on in South America where we get um, hundreds and hundreds of volunteers across uh, the Southern part of the continent all out on a weekend
1: to, to go count shorebirds and figure out how many there are. Um, So your basic, basic methods are just to to count them from, a distance with binoculars or whatever by a bunch of volunteers
2: yeah yeah we train the volunteers and well we've now had this project going for over a decade so we've got a lot of folks who are really you know just like here in the u.s christmas bird counts we've got folks that that are really invested in in performing these shorebird counts and um you know we do it a little different than a christmas bird count so we have sort of particular methods given the kind of habitat that they might be surveying um, that help us then on the statistical end, sort of make sense of all of the counts. Um, but yep, it's just people going out and watching shorebirds.
0: <laughs> Sign me up.
2: Yeah, actually, you know, uh, let's see. When are we doing it next? We're we're in January 2024. If you want to come. <laughs>
1: awesome. Yeah. I'm very I'm very skilled of taking the corks out of bottles of Malbec. Oh,
2: well, perfect. We need we need all types. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Everybody has something to contribute, Bob. Yeah, I can, I can yeah. contribute something. Yeah, well, that sounds good. There's some good pelagics run out of Ch- Chile, too. Yeah. The Humboldt yeah. Current. Yep,
2: so yep. Is
0: this island in the Humboldt Current?
2: Yes, it is. Uh, yeah. So it's, um, you know, the Humboldt Current is, uh, right, this cold water current that runs much the length of Chile up, peters out sort of up in northern Peru and it's just as important for the birds in a way as it is for for fish and marine organisms and and in particular for the godwits the humboldt current also means a very predictable flow of wind so that's actually what they use to power those epically long flights as they leave chilaway is is the humboldt
0: current Hmm. so it's driving wind yeah it's it's just kind of a mirror image of the california current in a way right yep yep yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, you will be at home if you go to Chiloe. It looks not unlike where
1: you guys are. It's is that right? Uh, yeah. Yep. Kelp. Yep. And yeah, a little yeah, bit they're... like a little bit like the uh, east coast of South Africa. Yeah. If you've I... se- if you've seen an octopus teacher that film, uh, you look if you don't look too closely. At those That's scenes right. that are shot underwater in a kelp bed, they look very much like California kelp yep. bed. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep.
0: Yeah. For, the, for good reason. Yeah, similar. Yeah.
1: they got big an- anemones. They've got uh, sea urchins. Uh, they've got big brown kelp, you know. Yeah.
0: yeah, so in a way, these birds are just kind of shuttling to and from regions that they kind of already know how to make a living in. Yeah.
2: I mean, to, to, to a degree. Absolutely. Uh, you know, although that is where the, the mid continent, the Dakotas yeah, and Alaska exactly. is sort of an anomaly, but, yeah. but no, yeah. At some level a
1: big intertidal mud flat is the same wherever yeah. you are. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Oh, I just going to say, Tim, that's probably why we don't have, uh, too, too many shorebirds that hang around here very much. Cause we don't have a lot of, of a estuarine mud flat kind of habitat here. Yeah, uh, on on the Mendocino Coast. Uh, yeah, yeah. You guys have a higher energy, yeah, rocky coast. Get yeah, down exactly. into Tomales Bay, Bodega Bay Harbor. Yep. Uh, Drake's Bay, you know, San Francisco Bay. Yeah, Humboldt Bay. Yep. Our
0: our archetypal shorebird is the black oyster catcher. Right. And we have one of the highest density populations of black oyster catchers. On the whole Pacific Coast, because our shoreline okay. is almost entirely rocky shoreline, yeah, and yeah. that's their habitat. But they're yeah, a good one big, too. Oh, they're <laughs> great. Yeah, I don't think I'd trade them for for those that's waders. The uh, they have so much personality. They do have personality. No, yeah. no question about that. But they're the opposite of your of your migratory shorebirds. I mean, they're just incredibly sedentary. Yep. And so they don't have to go to all those gyrations of you know, and <laughs> en- enlarging and shrinking their organs and cannibalizing their own tissues and all those crazy things that shorebirds do, right? Yeah. Well, we can, you know,
2: as as someone who's moved around the world, I I may study shorebirds because I I have a similar lifestyle. So we can debate the merits of residency <laughs> versus
0: migration. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, But you presumably don't cannibalize your own internal organs every time you move.
2: I I don't know. I do run marathons, so... Oh, well, maybe you do then. Yeah, okay.
0: You do have a lot in common with shorebirds then. I wish I had the capabilities they do to to
2: make use of
0: of the energy. We have only a few minutes left in the program if you've just joined us. uh, Somewhere along the way, we haven't uh, reminded you for a while that uh, this is the Ecology Hour. Uh, Bob Spees and I, my name is Tim Bray, we're talking with Dr. Nathan Center about his research into shorebirds, in particular migratory shorebirds like the Hudsonian Godwit, uh, using uh, the latest and greatest in modern technology to learn more about uh, how they move from place to place and what they do when they get there. Uh, with an eye towards figuring out how they're going to handle the ongoing climate change and uh, the other habitat alterations that humans are causing along the way let's talk a little more i guess in the last few minutes about the the climate change research and where you uh, where you see that going in the near future
2: yeah you know i i think the the thing that maybe want to leave listeners with is that we can climate change is a bad thing (laughs) it is is not not in generally not in general friendly to to most bird species
0: yeah for creatures of habit change of any kind is bad right
2: yeah but and that's exactly that is a great point right so so the for us to understand climate change and how it influences species and individuals we really do need to understand what those habits are and what, for what reason those habit habits have evolved. And so some species have evolved to deal with certain kinds of change and other species have evolved to deal with other kinds of change. And sometimes that the change that they've evolved to deal with actually aligns pretty well with how climate change is progressing. And so those species maybe aren't in so much trouble. For others, you know, the kind of change that is brought by climate change is very antithetical to what they've evolved with. And and that's where the problems start to arise. And then, of course, climate change is sort of layered on top of all the other things that we've done to basically every ecosystem across the globe. So, you know, climate change is, is a bad thing, but it's not the only bad thing. And so what i would say we're learning really by and large with shorebirds and especially with the hudsonian godwits is that they can deal with actually quite a lot of change that's happening but because we're starting to layer so many different kinds of change on top of each other that's where the problems really start so these godwits that are breeding in alaska they've actually been keeping up with climate change quite successfully But we see that in years, and by climate change, in this case, I'm talking about warming temperatures, but we see that in years where there are unusually warm temperatures in Alaska, combined with maybe dry conditions in the Dakotas where they are stopping, you know, before going to Alaska, that's, that's a bad year. That's where we see fewer adults actually surviving the migration northwards. And then we see those ones that are arriving, maybe not being able to time their reproduction very successfully. So we see uh, that they aren't producing many young. So it's that wham- you know sort of that double whammy there, um, and and so that's how we you know going forward need to try to identify ways that we can sort of pick apart all those kinds of changes that are happening, and it, you know maybe say, okay, climate change is really hard to deal with. That one is on you, but we can at least make, say, water more available or some of these other, you know, alleviate some of the pressures that they, they might be facing in other categories. Um, so, yeah, I, I try not to, to get too gloomy about the uh, the forecast for all of these species and, and try to... M- more compartmentalized. which are the changes they can deal with and which which are the ones they can't and so how do we how how do we best serve them in dealing with those ones that are most difficult for them
0: well yeah that's you're taking the big picture look there that's for sure (laughs) yeah i mean you're really that's that's a, a real holistic and integrated look at you know a lot of scientific research in the past has been really compartmentalized and just looking at one aspect of uh, an animal's life history and you're trying to figure out the ways that they adapt which is a kind of a whole nother level of understanding I think when you
2: when you've got a bird that spans the whole globe with its movements you you, you're sort of forced to take that look if you're going to ever hope to understand what what's going on with them so yeah it, it's Absolutely. a challenge though <laughs>
0: yeah yeah it is and it and it's a it's a relatively recent development right that a lot of ornithology was done by europeans and and north americans and so we studied the birds when they were in the northern hemisphere and didn't really put a whole lot of effort into figuring out what happened the rest of the year and, yeah, uh, absolutely.
2: And, 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 and our work would not be possible without great team members, as I said, you know, University yeah. of Australia, Chile, all those citizen scientists and great conservation organizations in each of those uh, countries.
0: You know, it is, it is a team effort. Look at yeah, and I think picture. that's one of the, the big hopeful signs really that's happening now is a, a big rise in that kind of attention and, and scientific research that's being done everywhere around the world
1: yeah looking at looking at the 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 whole big picture of a population and uh, and how the different uh impacts are affecting it in different parts of it range and different times of the year is very analogous to what uh, the problems he's faced with salmon restoration because they're in freshwater and they're in salt water, and they've got mm-hmm. young stages in freshwater that depend on certain sets of conditions. To get out in the ocean, it may be completely different out there. And so it, uh, looking at salmon restoration, you have to really think about everything that's going on in all parts of their range. And they cover a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. And, yeah, Similar problem, yeah.
1: Well, Dr. Center,
0: thank you very much for joining us on the Ecology Hour tonight. This has been a fascinating conversation. The hour kind
1: of flew by for me, as it were.
0: Likewise, yeah. Thank you so much.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's great. You did did really well. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to the Ecology Hour on KZyx. Hope you enjoyed that interview as much as we did. To find out more about Dr. Center's research or to catch up on Ecology Hour shows you may have missed